electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Karen Farnham. And tonight on Fast, the $200 billion market move from two tech titans. Apple and Amazon both surging today ahead of two key events. How our traders are playing these names heading into tomorrow. Plus, we're trading the vote how a blue wave in November could be a big win for the beaten down energy sector. And later, we are tracking the treatment. You'll hear from one company that could be on the front lines of the next-gen coronavirus vaccine, how they are looking to shake up the race for a cure. But we start off with breaking news on Disney. The stock is up about 4.5% after the company announced a major reorganization, basically uh, putting distribution in the center part of its business. Uh, Julia Borston's got all the details. She joins us now. Julia. That's right, Melissa. Disney's reorganizing its media and entertainment business to accelerate its direct-to-consumer strategy. It says this is in light of the success of Disney+. Plus. Now, the move divides content creation and content distribution, creating a new media and entertainment distribution group. Now, this group will be responsible for monetizing all content, including ad sales and content released through TV, film, and digital platforms like Disney+. Plus. This new division will also oversee operations of Disney's stream services. Take a listen to what Bob Chapek had to say. I would not characterize it as a response to COVID. I might say that COVID accelerated the rate at which we made this transition, but this transition was going to happen anyway, because essentially what we want to do is separate out the folks who make our wonderful content based on tremendous franchises from the decision making in terms of where the prioritization is in terms of how it gets commercialized into the marketplace. Uh, We've lost Julia. We'll bring her back as soon as we have it. Let's trade this because the stock is obviously reacting very sharply to the news. Bob Chapek also in that interview with Julia had mentioned investing more in content. And an investor day, December 10th, is going to reveal a lot more changes. Tim Seymour is a shareholder. Do you like this news? You have to like the news, not just because they're telling you that they've had uh, better than expected expected success at Disney Plus, but because, uh, again, think about the content, think about the questions around content um, and at least the new world order. Also, at least in a world where uh, the pipeline into studios has had, uh, you know, a, a basically a blocked door. Um, so the fact that you're taking the, the core content creators and bringing them all under the same roof and, and making that group a single head uh, makes a ton of sense when you consider the commitment to DTC and the commitment to that content. And that includes even Fox assets that they bought. So um, you have to be excited about it. You have to be excited about almost the sense of urgency uh, around this. Um, And I I think if if you think about where uh, the power is, you know, the 
the Disney content creation was always important, but they now really can bridle that with uh, 60 million plus. And I know Julia was trying to get uh, fresh subs numbers out of them. But you have to assume that they're pretty excited about these numbers. And we're going to hear about that on Investor Day. And that was also going to be a catalyst, that Investor Day. So the announcement of it uh, and the et cetera, I think, is, means there's more good news coming. Yeah, that was a great interview. And in fact, we got Julia Borson back. We've ironed out the technical uh, issues. Uh, Julia, in your interview, Chapek said that they are tilting the scale dramatically to DTC platforms. Did you get a sense of urgency here? It doesn't have anything to do with Dan Lowe being an activist in the stock now? Well, I did get a sense of urgency, but I do not get the sense that it was due to Dan Lowe being in the stock. He very much said that this is a change that's been underway for quite a while. They've been working on this for a while and that this was just accelerated because of COVID. Now, of course, Dan Lowe is... We are obviously having a lot of technical issues with Julia Schott, unfortunately, um, such a big story. But we'll continue to talk about this. I mean, Dan Loeb, uh, we were talking about this last week, is advocating um, scrapping the dividend, putting every single penny of that dividend into investing more in content. Chapek did acknowledge investing more in content, but didn't exactly say where the money would come from, nor did he, nor did he eliminate that idea of, of reducing or scrapping the dividend. He said everything, every investment is on the table, including the dividend, Karen. Yeah, I think it should be on the table, given how much debt they took on from uh, the Fox deal. And remember, the dividend doesn't need to be only zero or what it was. It could be something in the middle. Um, So that's a possibility as well. But this is sort of an interesting step. Some of the structure looks sort of unusual to me, where people report to, still report to Chapek, but they're under... The division that I, I didn't quite understand exactly how this was going to work, actually. And I wonder if this is sort of a step in an evolution uh, the guy had talked about with maybe a, a ESPN spin. Yeah. Guy. It's interesting. I mean, I would su- submit this is in response to the multiple that Netflix enjoyed for the last decade. And, you know, I think Disney say to themselves, listen, if we can focus our attention on this, that seems to be successful and we can get a third of the multiple that Netflix trades at. You can do the math in terms of where the stocks will be trading. So I agree with both Dan and Tim. I think it's a big deal. In terms of ESPN, I'm going to see where that falls. ESPN is a hidden gem there. They can just figure out how to monitor. We are obviously being um, riddled with technical issues this evening. But fortunately, we've got Dan Nathan to the rescue, and I would love to hear what you think of all of this, Dan. I'm just going to pick up where Guy left off here. What, what, what I think is really interesting, listen, we knew that they were going to be going in this direction. They launched Disney Plus on November 12, 2019, okay? So about 11 months ago. What did the stock do? I don't know if we have a chart right there. In the month of November last year, the stock went from 130, where it's trading right now, directly to 150. There was a lot of investor enthusiasm about this. Obviously, the stock had been uh, trending up higher prior to that launch for months and months. So this is where they were going. And I think KPEX said it. This just accelerated everything. Back to Guy's point about Netflix. Netflix in 2019 raised prices, and they also saw their North American subscriber growth go X growth. Okay, So this was a great opportunity for Disney to consolidate what was a growing trend and direct 
direct to consumer. They have the content. They've never needed to spend the sort of money that Netflix was doing, 15, 17 billion dollars a year. And if they can kind of do that for their own content on Disney Plus, it makes sense. Rich Greenfield told us that last week. That's what he'd like to see them do. They have that Hulu property. They have lots of optionality here at a time where I think Netflix pulled forward a lot of demand. They're likely to see massive deceleration. I think Disney from here on out probably sees pricing power, especially with that Disney Plus price point where it is below $10 and then the ability to bundle with Hulu and ESPN Plus. This is obviously a great move for Disney. For more on this news, let's bring in the aforementioned Rich Greenfield, media and technology analyst at Lightshed Partners. Rich, great to have you with us. What's your Thanks take on this? And does this make you, you have a sale rating on Disney. Does this make you more optimistic about Disney's prospects? Look, this is a brilliant move in terms of in terms of first steps, right? Like Disney had to figure out how they decided who made decisions. You know, when you're making lots of content, the, the real challenge right now is does this go to a cable network? Does this go to the movie theaters? Does this go to Disney Plus? Like there was all of this internal debate over which content went where, because unlike Netflix, which obviously only has one place to put it or an Amazon Prime where there's one place to put it with Disney, there's probably 20 different places for content to go. And so step one, obviously, is are you actually putting and prioritizing this content and putting it in the place that creates the most value? I think this is essentially what this new reorg is designed to do is basically, hey, we need to have a core team that all they're going to focus on is which content we make for which platform. The reality, though, in terms of like what is going to mean for the stock is what are their actions actually going to be? Because, you know, they had this big opportunity. They had a whole list of movies that were ready to go to streaming and could have gone to streaming in Q4. They've delayed all of those movies other than Soul, which is behind me. That's going to go to Disney Plus on Christmas Day. But the entire rest of the slate has been delayed until middle of next year. And so they still seem pretty committed to the movie theater business and to kind of windowing content. And so mm -hmm. it's great that they're reorging. I applaud it. I think it's absolutely the right move. Now we need to see when they say, and I heard Chapik, when they say they're going to be more aggressive, let's actually see them do it. You know, they've done this with Hamilton, now with Soul. Are they prepared to start shifting their highest profile properties, Lucasfilms, Marvel Films, directly to D to C? We haven't seen any evidence of that. I think that's what the market is really looking for, is are they ready to sort of embrace being Netflix? Hey, Rich, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. And, and that's where I would like to go with the question is on the multiple, because it's all about the Netflix multiple. And does anything that's announced today change the multiple? When they went to DTC, I felt like a more hybrid multiple was 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 imperative. But um, you're the man. You tell us yeah, how like, you're going to look at Tim, this. Tim, I think you got to really think about sort of, you know, this is not just about subscribers. Remember, you know, Disney Plus has lots of subscribers, you know, 60 plus million subscribers. But remember, the ARPU is a fraction of what Netflix gets. And the reason why is that we did a study. We looked at a recent study that Comscore put out. Disney is roughly 5% of streaming time spent in the U.S. Netflix is 26, 27%. So it's not just about, you know, it's not just about having um, a lot of subscribers. It's about how much are they actually using it. Disney Plus, because there hasn't been yep. that much fresh content, hasn't gotten used a lot, especially over the age of 10 consumers. And so I think what it comes back to is really the first question in terms of the valuation for their D2C business is premised on do they actually treat it like Netflix? Netflix doesn't put movies in movie theaters for, you know, 65, 70 days 
and then try to put them on D to C. They use subscribe. They use content directly into into the streaming service to drive the ARPU, to drive the new subscribers. And so you mentioned before, I think it was, maybe it was Julia, that they raised price last year. They raised price on Netflix last year because they've added more value. They just raised price in Canada last week, Australia a few weeks ago. So the bulk of content, the, the, the huge amount of content on Netflix has allowed them not just to drive subs, but to drive pricing. And that obviously drives the valuation that you would attribute to a D2C platform. I think for Disney, we have to move from this being something that you charge, you know, essentially the average ARPU of Disney Plus is around $5. How do we get that to be a meaningful ARPU, meaning seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve dollars $12? Moving original films like Soul, if they are consistently willing to do that, I think that's a service that could drive a $15-plus ARPU and completely change the future of the Walt Disney Company. Hopefully, we'll get a sense on December 10th whether that's the direction they're going and how wedded they are towards the movie theaters and kind of that sequential release pattern that has dictated the movie business for the last 30, 40 years. So, so Rich, when you said before that now basically a, a centralized uh, place within the Walt Disney Company will decide where to put that content in order to drive the most value, how is value perceived in that respect? I mean, you can, you can perceive value by putting a blockbuster film onto Disney Plus and gaining a certain number, X number of, of subs, or saying that gaining X number of subs will let it have an, a, a third of the valuation of a Netflix, and so therefore that creates value. How do you think they're going to navigate that? Well, Netflix, you know, we did a study recently that showed that Netflix uh, revenues are now greater than Disney studio revenues. And, you know, if you actually add, you know, Netflix is going to be larger than Disney and Warner Brothers film studios together. And so the economics of streaming, um, you know, having hundreds of millions of subscribers that, you know, 10 plus dollars a month. It's a massive business, far better than any historical studio business. And so I would argue the right long-term decision is to move content off of those legacy platforms. Like new shows, I don't know why Dancing with the Stars premieres on ABC. I would put Dancing with the Stars on streaming. I don't know why, you know, a movie like Black Widow has to get punted to next year. I'd put it, you know, yes, is there tremendous short-term economics? There are. But if you really believe in your assets and the quality of your content and you believe you can build a long-term subscription business i think netflix and spotify and you can go you know down the list i mean look at peloton in the last if you really believe you can build a scaled subscription business the rewards are, are incredible and so i would think if disney's looking at this what investors are hoping for is that disney really lives up to what they say meaning it's not just putting the people in these divisions and reorganizing that it's actually going to lead to a different approach to content and that they actually are going to say, you know what, we're going to start starving these cable networks. We're going to start starving the broadcast network. We're going to put this stuff first onto streaming mm -hmm. because that's where we build the long-term asset value. I don't know if they're ready to do it. I think right. it's going to be really interesting to see whether what happened in Q4 with shifting movies, they take a very different approach yeah. as they move into next year because of this structure. Well, that'd be a very different business model from what it is currently. Rich, great to have you with us. Thank you, Thanks Rich Greenfield, Lightshed Partners. Um, and Guy, I'll go back to you since we've got you back, uh, hopefully technical issue-free. Um, but this would be a, that would be a major change. So let's, let's say that what Rich Greenfield is prescribing happens and that Disney becomes that content juggernaut focused on streaming. What does that do to its other parts of its businesses? I mean, obviously, networks would be starved, cable channels would be starved of content. But how about parks and, and crews and things like that? 
I don't think they're going to take their focus away. I, listen, I, hopefully parks come back as, you know, they all go hand in hand. Parks, crews, movies. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think that's still a big part of their business. But my point earlier was, and I don't know how far I got, I think this was in response to the success Netflix had over the last decade. And I think that's exactly it. If Disney can be even remotely as successful as, as mm-hmm. Netflix and get sort of a third of the valuation, then you're talking about a much different multiple for this stock. And I think that's the game plan here. You know, what they do with ESPN is really beside the point. In terms of levels, and I know Tim can speak to this, 136 was the high I think we saw on August 28th. That's where we're probably going to trade up to. A close above that, and then you have the all-time high of 153 from November right in the crosshairs. It's interesting how the calendar works out on that one. All right, let's get to the other big story of the day. And that would be shares of Apple jumping 6.3% as investors count down to tomorrow's big product event. At the center of the hype, the prospect of new 5G iPhones. I've never heard of that before, Dan Nathan. A 5G iPhone that is coming, that is coming this year to Apple? Really? It's a, it's a super cycle, Mel. Get ready for it. Um, listen, you know, these events... We already know what's coming. There's going to be three phones. It's going to be 5.4 inches. It's going to have a flat side. It's going to have 5G. It really comes down to what is the network capacity? What is going to be the availability? What is the demand for this product right now when a lot of people are not out and about and they don't care about download speeds? Are they going to be willing to spend $1,000, $1,100, $1,200 to upgrade their phones? I just don't know here. Um, listen, the stock's rally today is not a great setup. I would expect it to follow through, rally into that one p.m. Eastern event, and you're going to have three phones, and they're going to tell you you can order them sometime or have them delivered at some point in November. I just don't know. I, I think overall for the NASDAQ today, you saw some crazy price action, and we're going to talk about Amazon. It looks like that SoftBank options whale was back powering these things. If you saw the FMAGA complex, all of them massively outperforming, drawing the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100, up 3%. That's got to be the largest update we've it's, seen in a very long time on no news. Yeah. Uh, Karen, obviously, I, I jest. We all knew that a 5G, a 5G phone was coming. Um, this yes. is probably the most telegraphed, game-changing super cycle ever in the history of shares of Apple. So the question is, what do you, what do, you do here? Well, I'm long. I hate when things run up on, you know, vapor. Uh, although so many of the other stocks, as Dan said, ran up today as well. I don't know how much of that was just sort of the MAGA euphoria versus expectations about what they're going to announce tomorrow. I think I'm staying long. The valuation has obviously gotten rich again. But I do believe that ultimately, I don't know that it's this quarter. I don't know it needs to be this quarter at all. But in 21, I do believe the 5G phone will be very big for Apple. Clearly, there's very high expectations already priced in. But I don't think the valuation is crazy given the market that we're in. So... I'm staying long, Apple. Yeah, Apple Super Bowl. Dan Ives over at Wedbush um, predicts that uh, this super cycle will exceed that of fiscal year 2015, which was driven by the iPhone 6 Plus, where sales arose 51, 52 percent in the following 12 months after that launch. Tim, history is fun. Making those comparisons yeah. are fun, but we are in a pandemic. 
and history doesn't rhyme. It, you know, it, it, it doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. I, and, and you have to get 75 to million uh, iPhone shipments out there to get some of those numbers. I, I think we pulled forward a lot of sales. We've been talking about 5G for nine months. Um, I think today uh, may have a lot to do with technicals. And again, the, the, the fluff in all of those names. Uh, the good news, I think, for the market is that semiconductors made an all-time high. And they've been showing a lot of leadership. But um, no, there's nothing about today's news that makes me run out and buy the stock. And in fact, I think uh, valuations are a little bit challenged here. All right. Coming up, it wasn't just Apple driving tech stocks higher today. We'll take a look at the trade in Amazon ahead of its sixth annual Prime Day and later a surprising call on what a win by Joe Biden could mean for the oil market. We are counting down to the election and trading the vote when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at shares of Amazon soaring today. The move comes as we count down to a much-delayed Prime Day, which kicks off at midnight. The annual shopping holiday was supposed to take place over the summer, but was postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Amazon up nearly 5% today. Guy Dami, this really resets the calendar when it comes to holiday shopping this season. I mean, it landing in the fourth quarter. Of course, and we're right in the holiday season, as you know, Mel, as you often like to talk about. I mean, I, pers- we're right in the thick of it. Look, in terms of the stock, I mean, I, this sets up the way it did a couple quarters ago where I did a run-up in earnings. If I'm not mistaken, I think Amazon's going to report on the 22nd of October. You know, I think we take out that all-time high of 35.50. If you're trading the stock and not just owning it as an investor, I think what you do is you own it into that earnings release after the bell and you sell it on the close of the day. I mean, I might be wrong. I might spike another $100, but I think this is going to set up the way we saw it a few month, a few quarters ago when you had that pretty precipitous drop. I think that's what you're setting up for now on Amazon. We already know that Target, Walmart, some other retailers are, are rolling out the specials to compete with Prime Day, Karen, as they have done in the past when Prime Day was over the summer. But in terms of the pressure it might put on other retailers, I mean, will we see that pressure because this falls in the fourth quarter and, and people might be spending on Prime Day and, and using funds that might have otherwise been deployed elsewhere? That's a good question. I'm not sure, but I think uh, some of that may depend on also do we get a stimulus? So do people sort of get, you know, um, another <clears throat> deposit to be able to buy fourth quarter holiday gifts? I don't know. But coming back to Walmart, I think that Amazon, Walmart, Target, Costco, I think they'll continue to do really well. I'm concerned for the other much smaller retailers. And I just think that the evolution that started before the pandemic, that accelerated into the pandemic, will really continue even quicker. And that'll leave just a lot of retailers in a very bad spot. Yeah, Tim? 
The staying power of the pandemic is 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 part of this story. I think this is what Karen's referring to. I think they're they're all benefiting from the move in, in e-commerce. Cowan has a great report out, I think, today uh, talking about how e-commerce sales in the U.S. are up 48 percent year over year, uh, which gets you essentially to a trillion a lot faster than people had expected. And in that environment, Amazon goes from 32 and a half, still dominating to 38 percent of a larger pie. So, um, you know, whatever multiple you were throwing on their business, and I realize AWS is a big part of that, but e-commerce has certainly been a place where people have been kind of throwing the window, uh, the multiple, and, I, and don't seem to care. They probably are more emphatic about that, looking at these trends, and I think they get better for Amazon. Yeah, this might put the pressure early on some of these shippers like UPS and FedEx, Dan, which we've been talking about for quite some time. Yeah, those are difficult setups. And those stocks, we know that they obviously benefited from their ability to ship, um, you know, this growth that we just we know that basically we've seen in six months the acceleration in online sales that would have taken maybe five, 10 years or so. So UPS, FedEx benefiting from that. Um, it seems that Amazon have been building out these distribution centers. They've been making them vaccinated. They already think I think they said they're going to hire 100,000 sort of people. I think they're relying on their own ability to get packages to people quicker, but those come with costs. And we saw that over the last couple of quarters, each time that these guys have shown us that they are winning the pandemic. There's also a lot of costs associated with that. When they report in a couple weeks, or I think on the 23rd or the 26th, whatever guys said, I mean, that's something the investors are going to keep a very close eye at with the stock at a new all-time high. And one last point about the price action today, I don't think it had much to do with anticipation of Prime Day. I think we're looking back and saying that the stock gapped up, it kept on going. The options activity called in particular this week are just off the chart. So it looks like it's a bit of a feeding frenzy, buying the calls. We're seeing all the big um, names and it's just kind of pushing them all towards those highs. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. As COVID case counts rise across the country, we talk to the CEO of a company trying to bring you the next generation of a coronavirus vaccine. Plus, we're counting down to the start of earnings season. What the debt markets are saying we should expect from the big bank reports. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Every day. Thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following the latest on the coronavirus as cases continue to surge in a number of U.S. states. Let's get to Meg Terrell with the very latest. Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, cases in the United States are on the rise again to now almost 50,000 a day. On the seven-day average, hospitalizations have now started to tick up again. Deaths uh, on the daily count are still declining, but of course they tend to lag hospitalizations by a week or two. Now look at where the most cases are being recorded. This is on a per capita basis, and the darker uh, the the shape there, the worse they are uh, in terms of the number of new cases. You're seeing Wisconsin, North Dakota, and South Dakota on a per capita basis really hit the hardest. Uh, this is a map from Evercore ISI showing U.S. hotspots. Where are you seeing the fastest growth in cases over the past week, really concentrated there in Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky, Melissa. Uh, And we are also, of course, seeing progress being made on the vaccine front. We are only a few weeks away, potentially, from seeing the first data. Pfizer has been guiding toward the end of October for potentially seeing its results Moderna uh, to November. Uh, And Melissa, we actually just got word from Pfizer that they're expanding their vaccine trials down to the age of 12. Uh, This is after they already expanded down to the age of 16. And as questions are being raised about when kids will get access to a vaccine as well. Melissa. All right, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell with the latest on the numbers here. The first COVID-19 vaccines to come to market will likely be designed to be injected in the arm. The researchers are already starting to look at the next generation of vaccines and study if inhalable treatments could offer better protection. Altimune is a Maryland-based biotech company that plans to start testing its nasal vaccine on humans within the coming weeks. Joining us now is Altimune CEO Vipin Garb. Vipin, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. You actually released today a pre-published comprehensive preclinical evaluation of that nasal vaccine. What did you find and, and Some are saying that this was sort of widely anticipated. Does this put you more on track to file an IND with the FDA and to start the first phase of your trials in the fourth quarter? Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, First of all, as you mentioned, uh, most of the vaccines that are in development today are uh, uh, intramuscular injection are given by a shot. And while these vaccines are, are looking very encouraging in terms of their ability to to generate systemic immune response, neutralizing antibodies. None of these vaccines are designed to activate this special kind of immunity called mucosal immunity. So what we reported this morning from our preclinical work is that our vaccine candidate, given intranasally a single dose intranasal vaccine, was able to elicit, was able to activate all three arms of the immune system. Not only it showed activation of, uh, of uh, uh, neutralizing antibodies, it also showed T-cell immunity, and finally it showed what is known as local mucosal immunity in the nose. If you think about this, uh, this particular virus, it attacks us through the nose, mm-hmm. uh, it multiplies in the nose, and it actually builds a reservoir in the nose before it attacks the rest of the body. So it makes sense that we should also attack the virus at the point of entry. And that's exactly what we are doing with our, with our intranasal vaccine. Right. The idea is to, to, in addition to having uh, neutralizing antibodies and T-cell, activation of T-cell immunity, we are also activating this third arm of the immune system called the, 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 the local mucosal immunity in the nose. Mm-hmm. And we think it could be critical for preventing uh, spread of the virus, further spread of the virus, because having these, uh, having these, uh, this mucosal immunity can can have the effect of uh, blocking the transmission. So this None data, of the vaccines uh, that are in development, they are able to block transmission. 
Um, just to be clear, the data that, that was pre-published today, this is data in mice. And so when do you anticipate, um, in, you know, as you look out on the timeline and, and given um, the expeditious way in which the FDA is sort of green lighting each phase and, and even doing phase one and two simultaneously, when would you anticipate doing a trial in humans? Yeah, so we are ready. We are in the process of preparing our IND. We expect to find an IND within weeks and start our phase one clinical trial before the end of the year. We anticipate data in the first quarter, and, and if the data looks good, we will immediately move to phase two studies. So really, by the second half of next year, we are preparing to produce large quantities, large amounts of the vaccine. So we can move very quickly at this point. Uh, you know, during the second half of next year, we could have a vaccine ready to go. And how should we think about this this nasal vaccine, Vipin? I mean, should, is it a replacement for the intramuscular ones that are being currently developed, or would it be used in conjunction? So, you know, we know very little about this virus at this point. Even though we've made a lot of progress, it is clear that we don't know anything about the durability of the of the in, immune response. We don't know what different types of immunities will be required. We don't know if, if just neutralizing it. See, most of the vaccines, they're really not designed to block transmission. They're, they're designed to, to reduce the disease, to, to prevent the disease. By bringing this third element of the immune response, the nasal mucosal immunity, we think we, have, we can also block the transmission of the virus. So we are, we are moving forward as a single dose intranasal vaccine because we are activating all three arms of the immune system. Mm -hmm. But there is a possibility that down the line, our vaccine can work with other vaccines. Uh, uh, in, our, in other words, you could have a combination of two different types of vaccine, a intramuscular vaccine followed by an intranasal administration. So that possibility does exist and we will explore that. The other thing I would point out is children, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Children, we need to figure out how to vaccinate uh, children also, because even though they don't get severe disease, they can be potential carriers of the virus and can spread the virus. So it's really important to have a mucosal intranasal vaccine, which children like to take intranasal, less invasive. But on top of that, having this benefit of mucosal immunity and the potential to prevent the transmission of the virus could be critical in, in, right. in pediatric right. vaccination. Vipin, uh, we hope you'll keep us posted on this. We appreciate your time. Vipin Garb, the CEO of Altimmune. Um, and, and obviously, intranasal, it's easier to distribute in that you need fewer health professionals to do so. It is easier to take, as Vipin had mentioned, to, to give to uh, demographics like children. Um, Guy, it's interesting because as we've evolved and thinking about these treatments, at first we always thought that treatments would replace others. And so when you had positive news for one treatment, you would see another treatment stock go down. But now we're learning that even treatments and even potentially vaccines could be used in conjunction with each other. And so there may be room at the table for a lot of these stocks. In, in concert with. So I'm, I'm somewhat reticent to talk about Altimune only because of its market cap. And I think as we're talking here, the stock's probably up 9% in the after hours. But what I will say is, and we've done a decent job with this, if you look at the IBB, I think it closed around 144 <laughs> today. And for the longest time uh, in the spring over the summer, we said you traded against that 127 low that you saw back in June. And that exactly pretty much what happened. Traded down to 127, held and bounced. I think IBB takes out the all-time high of, I think, 147, and we're off to the races. In terms of individual stocks, we've talked about this for a while. I understand that Lilly's not a biotech name, but I think Lilly works here, and I do think Amgen continues to work here, Mel.
All right. We've got a big interview, by the way, coming your way tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. Shep is sitting down with the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci. That is tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Still to come on fast, shares of Twitter jumping to their highest level in more than six years today. We'll bring you the call that sent this little blue bird flying. Plus, earnings season kicks off in earnest tomorrow. We'll break down what you should expect from the big banks to big pharma. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Twitter taking flight on the back of a big upgrade from Deutsche Bank. The firm slapping a buy rating and a $56 price target on the social media stock. Analysts there see a compelling bull case for 2021. Expect the stock to continue to re-rate higher. And Dan, specifically, they said it's going to be a big event slate in 2021. Uh, do you like Twitter here, Dan? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I think this whole desk, we've liked it since the low 30s just a few months ago. That's the problem here. You are at uh, 48 bucks. This analyst says it could get to 56. That's a 12-month price target. I mean, it is getting expensive here. Talks about a re-rating. Um, you know, this is a company that is going to grow their sales maybe to $4 billion next year. That's just kind of a rounding error in the overall online ad market. So um, we're going to have to see a continuation of some of the really good trends that they had during the last quarter to see this thing go higher. I just don't see it here. I wouldn't be buying it, um, you know, up to $50 right here. We liked it much lower. Yeah, Tim? Well, the, if the chart uh, is, is all you're judging by, which is not what we do here, but, but you're, you're back to these June 2018 levels and standpoint, you know, you're, you're basically breaking out to all-time highs. Uh, let's see if we can get through these levels. But if you look at those second quarter numbers, they were impressive. They were impressive, certainly on their, their DAUs were up almost 35%. Um, and some of the, the even the margin on the business is certainly improving. But um, look, this is heyday time for Twitter. This is uh, about as good as it gets as you get into the political season. Let's see what they do to monetize these trends. I agree. If you do this on a, you know, on a, on a sales multiple, uh, EV to sales, it's, it's not cheap. Um, but I think Twitter, we've all recognized the intrinsic value here of this company uh, and that it's highly valuable to someone, if not to the current shareholders. Is what's good for Twitter good for Facebook in this, in this way, Karen? I think so. I think actually in that piece where they upgraded um, Twitter today, I think they upgraded Google and Facebook as well. And I, I'd rather go to Facebook, and I am there, I'm long Facebook, because similar trends, you know, they're talking about strength and ad growth and at a very different price. So I'd rather own Facebook, and I do, and Amazon, or I'm sorry, Alphabet. Coming up, we're trading the votes with just 22 days left until the election. We'll break down what a Biden win could mean for a key part of the market. And later, a big bank breakdown. What you can expect from the financial titans when they start reporting earnings tomorrow. Stick around. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money, where we are trading the vote. That's right, with only 22 days until the presidential election, we've got a new segment for you. We're breaking down the stocks and sectors that could see some big moves based off the results of the election. A Goldman Sachs today is out with a new note saying a Biden win could be bullish for oil prices. The big bank says a Biden administration could further boost oil prices by making production, especially for shale, more expensive and more regulated. So um, let's trade this vote. And, and Tim, I'm interested in getting your take on this call. Paul Sankey sort of said somewhat the same thing, that it'll be harder to drill, be harder to get the licenses to do so. And so therefore, supply will be more constrained and oil prices will actually go up. Yeah, and, and how much they can go up is another question. But the mm. break-evens on, on a lot of the, the non-conventional, the alternative fuels are, are, are certainly a lot higher than, than the traditional uh, upstream. So, 
Um, I, I kind of agree with that. I would also just point to the lack of investment in CapEx and OpEx within the industry for the last two years, three years, uh, as a function of balance sheets and, and also where I think companies that even have uh, some free cash flow recognize that it's not growth at all costs anymore. So uh, I think the, the discipline in the sector means you're going to see tightening inventories in the short run. Uh, I would not be buying the oil market based upon the strength of stimulus or what might happen with the economy. It has to be structural from within. Uh, find the best balance sheets. We've talked about this. I do think uh, consolidation within the industry, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, continues. Uh, and I think names like Chevron and Conoco are, are at least safe places to play on valuations that uh, you never buy them when you're cheap. You don't buy them and you probably buy them when they're expensive. They're really neither here. Um, but I think it's something to look at in those two names. I mean, a corollary to this is that Goldman is also saying that we could be in for a period of dollar weakness with a Biden win and that we could see uh, levels we haven't seen since 2018. So that that could play a role into this uh, you know, bullish oil call. Guy, what's your take on what Goldman's saying about energy? I agree 100% on the weaker dollar. I mean, I'm, I'm in the camp that you've seen a bounce in the U.S. dollar. I think the next leg is significantly lower. And whether or not that means crude oil goes higher, we will see. I, I, I totally get what they're saying. The flip side of that coin is, though, I think the, the, a Biden administration and, and the people around it are pretty outspoken in their sort of um, want to move away from oil. So maybe the two offset themselves. What I will say, though, in terms of a trade, and we've said this now for a week or so, for the first time in a long time, I think ExxonMobil, having traded down to that March low of about $31 or so and bounced, that sets up as well as it's set up in quite some time. As you mentioned, Paul Sankey, I, I, I think you know, he was looking for an entry point. And in terms of XOM, although I think Chevron's a better company, I think Exxon right now might be the better stock. All right. Coming up, big banks bracing for earnings. We'll break down the key names that need to be on your radar. And coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money, former NFL exec Eric Rubman is joining Jim to discuss his new SPAC. Be sure to catch it tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time. In the meantime, much more fast. Go ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Wall Street's counting down to earnings season. The big banks kick it off tomorrow. J.P. Morgan City, BlackRock reporting quarterly numbers. Our next guest has been tracking the action in bank debt over the past week, says the street might be underestimating just how well the big banks will do. Chris White joins us with his observations. He's CEO of BondClick. Chris, great to have you with us. Um, what do you see the, the debt markets pricing in for the banks? It's great to be here, Melissa. What we're seeing from the banks is in the lead up to earnings next week, we saw a rally across the board in the banking sector when you're looking at corporate debt. Um, heavy buying banks usually lead the activity in terms of the overall market. So it was no different uh, last week. But every single name in the top 20 by volume tightened according to the data that we're looking at. So it looks like people are positioning themselves for a positive call from the banks in terms of earnings. So positive immediately, but farther out in the future, what are investors anticipating? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, if you look at where the buying is occurring in the marketplace, um, what we're seeing is a, really a difference between uh, investors, the way that they're treating the, the front end, looking at banks like their five year and in debt was very popular. There was net buying activity there. But in the long end, we actually saw net selling. And I think what the bond investors are saying is in the short term, they think that banks look good now. But longer term, I think there are still lots of question marks and, and given that banks are so tightly coupled with Fed policy in terms of how they do going forward, I think that's a really smart bet. So um, bond investors seem to be placing um, a lot of their interest in just buying the debt that's going to be maturing in the next five years. 
Yeah, if, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. When you talk about the further out debt trading, is that a, is that a function of a thought on rates, or that's much more specific to the underlying bank credit? Well, the further you go, go out on the credit curve, the more risk that you're taking on. So it looks like the reaction that the market's having is everyone seems to believe that bank debt, um, from a value standpoint, um, is something that they want in their portfolio. However, how long do you want to be holding bank bonds is where there seems to be a bit of a disagreement. Where When you see net selling in the long end, that's usually an indication that um, from a volatility perspective, people aren't willing to take a a bigger longer term bet that has more risks in this particular name. I think given that just, you know, simple things in the Fed policy, not just the discount rate, but direct bond buying in the secondary market by the Fed has a direct impact on FIC revenues, which we all know are a massive part of how banks make money. I think it's important that people sort of watch what the Fed is saying before they start making longer term bets on bank debt. Chris, thanks for joining us. We hope you come back Pleasure. soon. Chris White of BondClick. Karen, do you, you often look at debt in general for, for stocks. Do you, do you look at bank debt as an indicator of investor appetite? I don't really. So it's interesting to hear his opinion. I, I look at the equity. Um, you know, when, in 08, bank debt was, was definitely worth looking at, and you had preferreds trading at, you know, 20 cents on the dollar. So that was interesting. But so I'm long the banks going into tomorrow. I, I hope they're right. The only thing that I don't like about the setup is that in the last 12 or 13 trading days, just JP Morgan, for example, is up at least $10 from an intraday deal. So that's a big move. That's just you know raising the bar for them to come out with strong earnings, which I think they will. But I don't know what's already priced in. But I'm long Bank America, Wells, City, and um, JP Morgan. Tim, what are you expecting out of bank earnings? Really well, interesting. I, I think All the four of those names, Karen, just... Gonna... Sorry about that. I asked for Tim, but we'll, we'll go both of you. But Tim first, uh, so, and then Dan. Uh, okay. Well, Dan's answer is always going to be a good one. But in advance of that, um, I think the loan loss provisions are the numbers. Uh, and, and what we've seen over the last two quarters is, is that these FIC earnings have been monstrous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the underwriting earnings have been monstrous, and people like J.P. Morgan have used that and put that away into loan loss provisions. I, like, if the economy is anything close to the rest of the market, and we've had this conversation uh, on this desk, is pricing in. Um, banks are way too cheap here, and I realize they're not all created equal. Look at how you know, Karen talked about J.P. Morgan 12 percent in 11 days going into these numbers. Citibank hasn't done that. Um, so I, 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 I'm long... Uh, both City and JP and Bank of America into this week, and I expect to be a relative surprise on the upside. Dan, quick. Uh, good segue from Tim. Uh, I think you look at the investment banks. I look at you, think you look at investment banking, capital market activity. Uh, Morgan Stanley is going to report Thursday before the opening. That one looks interesting to me. They just made this bid for Eaton Vance. They just closed their E-Trade deal. They are barbelling this thing. I think this is going to look like a different bank in a few years from now. I like Morgan Stanley. It acts much better than the whole space on a relative mm-hmm. basis. All right, let's keep the focus on earnings. It is not just the banks scaring up to report. Johnson & Johnson also with numbers before the bell. Operators are betting for a big move higher when the results cross the wire. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. So Johnson & Johnson calls significantly outpaced puts, trading more than three times the average daily call volume. Right now, 
The options market is implying a move of about $3.5 per share, higher or lower after they report earnings. That's about 2.3% of the current stock price. And in line with the 2.4% average that the stock has averaged over the last eight quarters or so, the most active options were the October 155 calls. More than 13,000 of those traded for about 82 cents. Buyers of those calls obviously making bullish bets. And like the preponderance of the flows that we saw in the options market, seem to be betting that Johnson & Johnson is going to trade higher out of earnings. Guy, what's your take on J&J? I'd be taking profits here. I hear what Coco Beware is saying, but it's had a huge run to the upside. I think it's time to pull the ripcord. But I do love uh, Mike Coe's observations, Melissa. Coco Beware. We haven't heard that one in a long time. Um, Tim, your, your favorite pick in this space. Well, first of all, J&J, I actually stay in the trade. I think uh, both their pharma pipeline is better than most. Their medical products looks very interesting. And we talked about biotech earlier in the space. Uh, I, I think Gilead, uh, both the, on the charts and what's going on with that core immunomedics uh, acquisition and their oncology business, I, I think this stock's finally ready to make a move. I'm going to open up to, I mean, we are starting earnings. We are starting earnings this week, and there are a lot of other companies reporting. So, Dan, what are you looking at specifically? Yeah, I, I think... The, the conversation about the banks will really set the tone. I think Karen's point about the big run that they've had off of a two-month low is not a great setup for them because they're really going to have to go above and beyond that. I think it really comes down to the FMAGA, and we're not going to get those until next week or late next week. They will determine if the S&P breaks out to new highs above that 3588 over the next couple of weeks. I would love to say that banks set the tone. I mean, I guess they do set the tone, but in terms of trading, Guy, we've seen time and time again. I mean, I don't think they've set the tone for trading since before the financial crisis. Yeah, I don't, you know, obviously banks as a percentage of the market now are, are, are nowhere near where they were at, the, at their height. But if you're asking me one stock that I'm watching, and it's mm -hmm. going to be Citibank this week for mm -hmm. sure, only because when we traded down to $42 a share, City was trading at 60% of tangible book, which is just levels we hadn't seen since 08, 09. I think it's too cheap. You know, I don't know if necessarily if City's an earnings story, but I think City has to get re-rated, and I think City trades higher from here, Mel. All right, time for the final trades. Go around the horn. Tim. Part of the conversation tonight has been about the weaker dollar and also some of the global markets that are actually starting to outperform. So if you look at the EEM, emerging markets uh, actually back to one-year highs and getting close to two-year highs, and that would be a major breakout. So watch the EEM. Karen. Yep. Yeah, I'd buy Morgan guy, Stanley Diamond. below 50. Oh, my God. <laughs> Karen, quick ticker. <laughs> J.P. Morgan. Go All right. Jamie. Dan. Morgan Stanley. Guy. <laughs> Meow. Caterpillar, Mel. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.